For the last 200 years or so, Western culture has been shaped by a children's fable known as the Three Little Pigs. And the the general chuckles in the room as soon as I say that is making the point for me that across generations, everybody knows the story of the three little pigs. They set off on their own journey. They head into the forest. Their parents wave goodbye to them as they make their own road and plow their own path, as they blaze their own trail. And mom and dad give a final word of warning as these three little piggies go off into the woods. And their one warning is to look out for the big, bad The big bad wolf, that's right. And they go off, and the first pig gets right to business and builds a house made of straw. And the second pig gathers up a whole bunch of sticks and puts together his little stick house. And the third pig goes off and builds a house made of bricks, and it's strong, and it will withstand withstand the wolf no matter what he does. And the, the big bad wolf comes, and he huffs, and he puffs, and he blows down the straw house. And the little piggy goes running off to the next house made of sticks, and the big bad wolf comes, and he huffs, and he puffs, and he blows down the stick house. And the two little piggies go running off to the brick house, and the big bad wolf comes, and he huffs, and he puffs, and he can't blow down the brick house. So he gets a better idea. He runs up to the roof and jumps down the chimney, and he comes down to this cauldron of boiling water, and he's burned, and he runs back, jumps back up and runs off, and he's never heard from again, and the piggies live happily ever after, and they're really glad that their wiser, harder-working sibling built a strong house that wasn't made of straw and sticks. Amen. There's probably 10,000 applications you could make about it, right? Is it about wisdom or listening to your parents or working hard or looking out for whatever? I, I don't know what the initial one was. But one thing that's certain is the wise pig paid attention to the real dangers in its life. Paid attention to the real dangers. And here in 2 Timothy 2, it's as if Paul is writing to Timothy with the same message. Timothy, there are real dangers in your life. And you got to pay attention to them. Don't be like the first two pigs who just got busy doing whatever they were doing and didn't pay attention to these real dangers. There's a real big bad wolf. He's not a cartoon. His name is Satan. And he's coming to devour every single person in this room today. And we get a little uncomfortable talking about demons and Satan and this kind of thing in the West. We get the picture of the little red cartoon on our shoulders and we don't take it all that seriously. And it's like Paul saying, no, 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 wake up, guys, pay attention. There is real danger in your life. 1 Peter 5, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he, can, who he can devour. He's coming for you. Wake up. Pay attention. Timothy, I want you to see this. Paul's writing at the end of his life. 2 Timothy is the very last book he would write. Last words are lasting words, we said a few weeks ago. He's saying, Timothy, don't miss this one warning. And he spent all of chapter 1 explaining some of the warning signs. He said, Timothy, here's what Satan's going to do. He's going to come and try and make you ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Bear witness. Proclaim the gospel with boldness. Sounds kind of like Satan's tactics today, doesn't it? Make you ashamed of the gospel, fearful of the gospel. Austin prayed we wouldn't be sheepish in sharing the gospel. Later in chapter 1, Paul's going to say, hey, Timothy, Satan is going to get you to suffer It's actually the Lord is using that suffering for mighty stuff. So don't shrink back in your suffering. Don't get distracted by the suffering. And Pastor Casey explained that so well for us last Sunday. Here's how this suffering is actually used by God to accomplish his purposes. 
Timothy would say to, or would receive the word from Paul at the end of chapter one. You know what Satan's going to do? He's going to try and lead people away so that your closest brothers and sisters in arms, they abandon you and you feel isolated and alone and forsaken and you just give up. You say, it's not worth it. I'm defeated. Everybody around me. And you throw in the towel. That's what Paul's been saying so far. And he comes to chapter two and he says, Timothy, here's how you're going to build a strong spiritual house. Yes, you've seen the dangers. Mom and dad told you look out for Satan. Now here's actually how you build the house moving forward. Here's how you build a brick spiritual house. And the overarching theme of the whole thing you're going to see here is Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have to get this. It's not about you. It's not about you. That's why the sermon is titled Disciple, It's Not About You. So if you're writing anything down, write that down this morning. It's not about me. It's not about me. And I want you to think about this sermon a bit like a trip to Lowe's. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to Lowe's for a project, and you realize there are materials that you don't have in your garage, so you have to go to Lowe's to get them. It's not about you. You don't have the materials you need to build a strong spiritual house. And Paul's going to say to Timothy, here's how you get those materials. And then there are some methods for building the house. And just like, well, actually, I don't know. Some of you are really handy. You may not need the methods when you go to Lowe's, but when I go to Lowe's, I have to ask the workers there how to use the materials. I need their methods. And I have to realize, I have neither the materials nor the methods needed to accomplish this project. And Paul's saying to Timothy, the materials come from God and the methods come from God. And here's how you're going to build a strong spiritual house. Now, I will warn you on the front end. It's a kind of a long outline. There are five materials and four methods. That makes nine points in a sermon. Not my first rodeo. We can, we can navigate a nine-point sermon and be all right. But look for those five. And what we're going to do is we're going to bounce around in the passage a little bit because Paul kind of layers the materials and the methods together. And I'm going to take the materials first and then the methods second. And so we'll just kind of be moving through the passage at various points. Materials for building a strong spiritual house. That's where Paul uh, is writing to us. Look back at verse 1. Sorry, before you go, the main point, I want to give that to you before I read that. The first material, strength from the grace of Jesus. As the material, you need strength from the grace of Jesus. Now look at verse 1, and here's how you see Paul leading. He says this to Timothy. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, Timothy, you need a strength beyond yourself. A Christian life doesn't get any more foundational than this. But it's very easily forgettable that I actually do need a strength for daily matters, not just the really difficult days that comes from Jesus. And it's easy for us to forget it all the time, but especially in our cultural moment where every single thing we hear from the voices around us is to look to ourselves, look into our own heart, find the resources we need, draw from there, and go for it. I don't watch a whole lot of reality TV, but a couple months ago, I turned on one of the shows. It was, actually, I forget which one it was. It might have been Dancing with the Stars or America's Got Talent or one of those kinds of deals. But the basic storyline for all the shows, get someone improbable up who's got amazing talents, interview them, ask them how they overcame all this adversity and got to this point where they are. And the answer is always something like this. I look deep into my heart. I told you all the great things I've found there and I've worked really hard and here I am, I'm a conqueror. And the person on this particular interview, the direct quote was this. I looked into my own life and I was amazed to see how much strength and resilience I have. 
the clear message to the rest of us. Well, just look into your own heart and see how much strength and resilience you have. And Paul's saying, no, that's absolutely wrong. Like, there are almost no more foolish pieces of advice you could ever receive than to look to your own heart for strength. He says, no, you have to look beyond yourself. It's what Paul would write in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. But the thing is, the grace that saves is also the grace that strengthens. And it's easy to think that the grace of God is what comes to help people become Christians, but the fact of the matter is grace is what makes you grow as a Christian. And the Galatians had forgotten this. When Paul wrote to the Galatian church in chapter 3, in verse 3, he looks at him and says, are you guys so foolish? You think you got started by the Spirit and now by the flesh you can become perfected? You think God's grace helped you become a Christian and now by spiritually white-knuckling it, you can grow? No, guys, you got to be strengthened by grace. This is Christianity 101, that Jesus came, lived the perfect life that nobody here lived. And he died a brutal death to pay for my sins, your sins, and offer forgiveness and hope of heaven and a right relationship with God. This is the gospel that both saves you and strengthens you. It is good news for bad people. So if you're here and you got this clear awareness of like, boy, here are the ways I've not met the mark. Jesus is offering real hope for real sinners. Real change, not, not some surfacey thing. Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. You have to start there. And when you get that, it'll totally change how you see yourself and how you see others. You'll go from being constantly frustrated by yourself, constantly frustrated by others, beating yourself down, beating them down, and recognize No, tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home, and it lowers my expectations for everybody. Not super optimistic sounding to say it that way, but I realize, you know what? I'm making progress slowly, only by grace. Others are making progress slowly, only by grace. And we're going to cling to grace instead of our own effort. That's the first material. You have to start be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Second material for building a strong spiritual house. Recognize that understanding comes from the Lord. You need understanding from the Lord. Verse 7 is what Paul says. He says to Timothy, Timothy, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You've got to look beyond yourself for understanding, Timothy. Now, some people have debated what that means, that understanding in everything. Is it Paul saying... Timothy, the Lord will help you understand what the Bible says. Well, certainly that's true, but I think when he says everything, what he means is everything, which would go beyond the Bible. He says, the Lord will give you the understanding you need, Timothy. In other words, Timothy, build your life on wisdom that comes from the Spirit. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the beginning of it? That you fear the Lord. In other words, Timothy, sometimes you're going to find yourself in spots where you're above your pay grade, you're out of your depth, you're past your own capacity. Timothy, you need to live in the fear of the Lord, recognizing that's the beginning of wisdom, trusting the Lord for all understanding. What he says in the the, the second part of that is this. He says, "Pay, pay attention to what I've said, Timothy. Because to have understanding from the Lord doesn't mean you forsake your brain. 
It doesn't mean you just embrace some kind of weird mysticism. It means you use your sanctified common sense. Engage your brain. Think through these things. And oftentimes, we actually don't want understanding from the Lord. We want a to-do list from the Lord. And so we ought to be praying, as I consider this, this decision, I don't know what to do with it. Lord, help me to see, am I driven more by selfish motives in this or by righteous motives in this? Am I considering how this will help me to love my family and my community, or is it just appealing to my own pride? As opposed to saying, Lord, send me down with a, a you know, handwriting in the sky, this clear direction, this is what I'm supposed to do. You, you know, we'll, we'll be driving down the road, praying over two decisions, it's raining outside, trying to figure out what's going on, and we start to think about one decision, and as soon as I think about that decision, it stops raining and the sun comes out, it's like, oh, God told me I'm supposed to do that. No, he didn't. It just stopped raining. He wants you to pray over all these things and search your heart because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and God is giving understanding, not a to-do list. So don't try and spiritualize normal activities like rainfall and sunshine and recognize God is giving understanding in all things. You have to look beyond yourself to his wisdom. St. Augustine said it this way, really simple, love God and do what you want. The first part's really hard. The second part sounds pretty easy until you start trying to figure out the first part. Say, am I actually loving God in this decision with everything I've got? Or is this just kind of a backhanded way of loving myself and getting what I want? Understanding comes from the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Paul says to Timothy, you want to build a strong spiritual house, you have to recognize this wisdom comes from beyond you, Timothy. It's not about you. Here's the third material for a strong spiritual house. It says, you need courage, Timothy, from the supernatural Jesus. Strength from Jesus' grace, understanding from the Lord, courage from the supernatural Jesus. Verse 8, take a look with me. Here's what it says. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Timothy, remember Jesus. What's the point that he's making here? Well, he's pulling out two miraculous aspects of who Jesus is. The Old Testament prophecies made about him, some 700 years in advance, offspring of David, and that he actually lived, actually died, and then walked back out of a grave. Dead men apparently don't stay dead when you're talking about what God can do. Remember those things and draw courage from it, Timothy. In other words, Jesus wasn't just some wise sage, wasn't just a moral teacher, wasn't just a supercharged life coach. No, he's actually the son of God, supernatural Jesus, bringing courage to you, Timothy. We read elsewhere in the New Testament that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power lives inside believers. That will give you courage. Imagine it this way, 200 years ago, you find an author writing, and the author makes a prediction, and it sounds something like this. Around the 1950s, America will be gripped by this strange new phenomenon called football. And the sport will grow, and there will be a team in Baltimore, they'll be called the Colts. And in the strangest of circumstances, in the middle of the night, their owner will decide to move out of Baltimore and go to... Indianapolis. And after many years of suffering, they'll win a Super Bowl, and then they'll find the chosen one. His name will be Andrew Luck. 
and he'll retire, and you will all suffer quite a bit. And then I will touch him, and I will give him a new body without a ruptured spleen or whatever he had. And I'll bring him back from the proverbial dead, and he'll lead you into the glory land to defeat Patrick Mahomes. But then what if that happened next year? Like, what if this year we found that prophecy? And next year, Andrew Luck came back and started playing after we just found this thing from 1824. You said, I don't know what was going on with that dude back there, but that was not normal. That was supernatural. That was, that doesn't happen. And that guy came and said, you know what? The same power I used to predict this whole NFL thing, the same power I used to heal Andrew Luck's body and give him desire to come back, I'm going to use that in you today as you're seeking to put selfishness to death. I'm going to give you that power to go invite your neighbor to read the Bible with you. That's a game changer. Maybe I wouldn't feel so cautious anymore. Maybe I'd have some more courage in me. Paul's saying, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and the same power that predicted 700 years in advance Jesus would come is also at work in you to give you courage to live for me. Remember Jesus Christ, offspring of David, resurrected from the dead. Fourth material for building a strong spiritual house, power from God's unbound word. Yes, strength from Jesus. Yes, understanding from the Lord. Yes, courage from Jesus, but power from God's unbound word. Verse 9, 2 Timothy 2, here's what it says. It says, for which I'm suffering, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul's writing from prison. He's bound with chains, but it's as if he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, just as it's impossible to bind one of those sunbeams coming down from the sun, you can't chain that thing down, it's impossible. So it is impossible to bind the Word of God. It cannot be stopped. Isaiah 55 says that just as the rain comes down and it always makes stuff grow, so when the Word of God comes down, it always brings about its intended purposes. It cannot be stopped. And when I recognize that, I find there's an amazing power there that's beyond me. It's not about you, disciple. It's about the power from God's word. I heard a story about the Soviet Union during Joseph Stalin's reign, where he was trying to confiscate Bibles. He was trying to bind the word of God and actually burn the word of God. He's been gathering them up, trying to get them from all the Christians. And once the Iron Curtain falls in the late 80s, there's a rush of missionaries that come into Russia. As it's been closed off for years, they get in, and they're trying to distribute all of these Bibles and the need is so great, the, the country is so expansive, so many people, and so they're, they're doing everything they can to get them in, and there becomes this shipping error. There's a supply chain issue. We've experienced those, and they can't get the Bibles to come down from Moscow. And one of the, the guys around there says, I think there's a warehouse where Stalin had stored some of these Bibles. And so they go and they, they look, and sure enough, the Bibles have been confiscated but not destroyed. And there's thousands of them. And so the missionary realizes, like, I don't have the manpower to get these things out. So he starts hiring Russian nationals to be truck drivers and truck loaders and to take these things out to all the churches. And he goes into the warehouse one day, and he's, he's just kind of walking around, seeing how things are going, and he sees a guy over in the corner, sitting down. He thinks, hired a lazy Russian. He's taken my lunch money, per se. So he goes and he, he checks out what's going on. 
immediately is struck with conviction. He looks, there are tears streaming down the man's face as he's sitting there with a Bible open. He goes and he asks him, he says, what's going on? Can I help you out? And the man, through tears, says to him, I've never read the Bible. I found one. I've read it. And I look on the inside and I see the signature of my grandmother who prayed for me for years and wanted me to read this book. Our government tried to steal it from me, tried to bind God's word, and I realized the word of God cannot be bound. Friends, you never know how God is going to use his word, but I can promise you this, his word cannot be bound. That's the reason I'm constantly telling you, when you get together with other Christians, just open his word and read it and talk about it. Read five verses, read five chapters. I don't care how much you read, his word cannot be bound. It never returns void. It always accomplishes its intended purpose. That's why when we talk about reaching out to your neighbors who don't know Christ, just ask them, will you read the gospel of Mark with me? Open up the word of God. It will do its work. It cannot be bound. And when you recognize that, you draw immense spiritual power both in your own spiritual house and in helping those around you build a strong spiritual house. It doesn't come from you. That's the fourth material. Fifth material for a strong spiritual house, hope from eternal glory with Jesus. Find hope from eternal glory with Jesus. This is in verse 10. If your copy of God's word is open, look back at that with me. Here's what it says in verse 10. Therefore... I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There's an eternal glory that gives Paul hope to keep going. Now, if you ever wanted a Bible verse that puts the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man side by side, this would be the one for you. Who is it that preserves the elect? God does. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And how does God preserve the elect? In this case, through Paul's endurance. That they would look and see Paul enduring in the face of great hardship and recognize, boy, I see that brother growing. I'm drawing strength from that. I'm drawing, drawing hope from that. I can keep going. Apply the same principle to salvation. You see that God definitely is sovereign over who comes to saving faith. And how does he bring them to saving faith? Through human means of the proclamation of the gospel, repentance, and faith. Side by side. And the idea is you're looking forward to a greater hope of eternal glory. Which I realize in the midst of really difficult circumstances, to say heaven is going to be really great feels like a total pastor move. It's like, don't you see the pain I'm in right now? Don't you see the difficulty I'm in right now? I get that. Two comments. One, Paul certainly understood. Constantly beaten, within an inch of his life, imprisoned, often without food, often left out in the cold, multiple nights overnight in the ocean. He gets the difficulty in ways that I certainly don't, and most of us, if we're honest, don't get. And he says it's worth it, so take it on his word. Second thing, the principle all of you live by right now. Imagine you're going to your favorite restaurant for dinner tomorrow night. Okay, you got a picture of that restaurant, what the table looks like, what the meal is you're going to get? Got it? I promise you, if you're wise, you will not eat lunch tomorrow. 
Some of you won't eat breakfast tomorrow. That's not wise. They say your belly shrinks, so eat just a little bit. Keep that way you can eat more at the good restaurant. Some of you wouldn't even eat dinner tonight or lunch today. And what's going to happen is tomorrow afternoon, noon, one o'clock, two o'clock, you start to get those rumbles. You start to get hangry. You can't focus on what you're trying to do. And what do you say to yourself? It's absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. I cannot wait to sink my teeth into whatever that meal is. The future hope is better than my suffering right now, and I can keep going. But if you didn't have that dinner waiting for you, what would you say? Oh my word, I have to have some peanut M&Ms right now. But you got something better on the other side. Paul's saying the hope of eternal glory is worth it. There's a weight of eternal glory, 2 Corinthians 4, that is beyond all comparison. It goes beyond anything you could ever imagine. And Paul suffered more than any of us had. He said, it's worth it. Friends, you build your spiritual house with a clear view of the hope of eternal glory so that whether I have my best day or my worst day or a whole bunch of mediocre days in the middle, there's a hope of something better that keeps me going. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. So there's five materials that we've talked about. Strength, understanding, courage, hope, and power. Every single one of them points away from you. It's not something you can produce on your own. Despite our culture constantly saying, look to yourself, you've got this. Paul is absolutely dismantling that and saying, no, you don't got it. But I know somebody who does. And as long as we go around looking for, to ourselves for the materials to build our spiritual house, it's like we're showing up at a tractor pull with our Prius. We just don't have the strength to get the job done. Or if you want to go back to the three little pigs, here we are running around really proud of our straw house and our stick house. And you need a brick house because life is really, really hard. And you're going to need something that's a lot better than those things to sustain you and carry you along your way. And Paul's saying, here's where it's at. It's not about you. But there's more than just materials. There's methods for building your spiritual house. In other words, you can have the right materials and the wrong methods and still be in a big problem. Cut right to the chase of what this means. You can have lots of religious activity, lots of Jesus talk, lots of theological knowledge and be in major trouble in your life. You can talk about having faith, but in the words of James, if your faith does not come along with works, then your faith is dead and it's no faith at all. Let me just tell you, there are few things as ugly as people with lots of religious knowledge and lots of religious talk that are absolute narcissists. It's absolutely horrific to see that in practice. Maybe you know people who've been around the church that way, and they've got all the talk, all the knowledge. They claim to have the materials, but they don't have the ways of Jesus. First John would say they claim to love God, but they don't love their brother, and they're a liar. This brings us to the methods where Paul says to Timothy, yes, there's materials for your spiritual loss, but there's methods as well. Incredibly tactical section of scripture. Let's dive in. Here's the first method for building a strong spiritual house. He says, pursue generational discipleship. Pursue generational discipleship. Verse two, here's what we read. Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
says, Timothy, maybe the best way to keep the faith is to focus on passing on the faith. When we talk about raising up pastors here at Parkside, 2 Timothy 2.2 is one of the primary verses we're looking at. Four generations in view. Paul is generation one, gives it to Timothy generation two, gives it to faithful men generation three, who will be able to teach others, generation four, four generations, one verse, passing on the faith. Friends, recognize this, generational discipleship is not optional for the Christian. That's not what the pastors are called to or what the missionaries are called to, it's what Christians are called to. It means you're going to have to actively pursue someone Maybe somebody older than you, maybe somebody younger than you, most likely both someone older and younger than you. If you reject this and go your own way, what happens over and over is you end up with people kind of like you who grew up in a similar cultural space, similar generational pieces, and you start to build your own echo chamber. And it goes both ways, old to young, young to old. I'm not picking on any generation here, but what happens is, boy, can you believe how crusty the old people are with this? Or can you believe what those young kids are wearing and how they're talking these days? And you miss the image of God and the grace of God in both. Certainly none of them are perfect. That's why we need each other to learn from each other. But in intergenerational discipleship, you see the grace of God in amazing ways, and you're challenged to go forward in incredible ways. I tell you what, this, this fall, we're launching a new leadership development class that's trying to get at this intergenerational kinds of discipleship. It's going to be intense. I tell you, it'll be a 10-month class. And we'll actually open up our sign-ups to that sometime in May. It's coming up, and I want you to prayerfully consider, should you apply to this training opportunity? I think it might benefit you to be with multiple generations entrusting these things of the gospel to the next generation. But maybe you say, Justin, I... I'm not really interested in a 10-month class right now. I'm still not quite sure how to open my Bible up and read it because there's some weird stuff in the middle. Tell you what, if that's you, would you please come and talk to me after the service? Because i got a whole bunch of people sitting all around you who would love to get together and open the Bible and help you learn how to read it and understand who God is and who you are and how you're supposed to respond. I'm not joking at all in that. Like there are tons of people who say, I know I would love to do this. And if you're wondering, how can I grow in learning about this book and this God and who I am, please let me know. I would love to get you connected with somebody. Or write it down on one of those little note cards in the pews or something. Pursue generational discipleship, critical method for building a strong spiritual house. What's the second method? Paul says this, avoid distractions. Avoid distractions. Yes, pursue generational discipleship, but also avoid distractions. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You're on a specific mission. Be single-minded. Anything that distracts me from loving God, loving others, making disciples of my neighbors and those in this church is getting off of the mission. There's lots of civilian entanglements to pull me away from God's clear call on my life. Just imagine in this context, Paul's thinking about the Roman army. They're off conquering somewhere in the middle of Europe. Who knows where they are? And one of the soldiers comes to his commanding officers, and he says something like this. Man, I know we have artillery training this afternoon, but the local farmer's market has some unbelievable salsa, and they close at 3 
I don't think I can make it today. What if the, far, what, what, what if the soldier wrote home to his family and said, I know I was supposed to send money home from my soldier's paycheck to pay for the kids' schooling and the shoes they need because they're growing, but fact of the matter is, there's some really cool gladiatorial games over here, and I really want the box seats for those. You just look at it like, dude, have you lost your mind? Because I'll help you find it. It's not hard. Single-minded focus. Remember who enlisted you. Your commanding officer. What's he called you to do? Doesn't this hit us in the church today? Square between the eyes. All kinds of civilian entanglements, reasons we can't make it to church, reasons we can't invest in eternity, reasons we can't own family discipleship. It's easy to laugh at the Roman soldier who wants to get to the farmer's market. Real easy to make excuses for civilian entanglements that are distracting me from the single call and mission of God in my life. Avoid distractions. Super clear, super straightforward. Take it to heart, embrace it, live it out. Third method. He says this, compete by the rules. Verse five, compete by the rules. An athlete, verse five says this, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And in a world that wants to tell us that God's rules for competing are confusing, I'm here to tell you, God's rules for competing, the race of life are not confusing. Pursue affections for Christ. Flee wickedness. Love God. Love others. Make disciples. Not complicated, but very difficult. Compete according to the rules. I had a friend in college on my basketball team. He didn't play very much. So what he did is he kept stats in warm-ups. And we'd get to the end of warm-ups, we'd get back, they're going to announce the starting lineup. He says, bro, I had 27 points, 12 boards, 11 assists in warm-ups today. Every single game, he kept a tally. And it was a joke, right? He wasn't actually serious, although he did keep track of it. And you're just like, what are you doing, man? Like, isn't there something better you could be doing with your time here? And I wonder how many of us live our lives just like him. On the dashboard of our life, we're competing not according to God's rules, God's standards, God's metrics for what matters, but I got a clear picture on where am I at in finding a spouse? Where am I at in paying off the mortgage? Where am I at in the 401k? How far am I from the next promotion? But if I were to ask you, how are you growing in love for God this week? How are you growing in love for somebody else in your community group this week? What steps are you taking to reach your neighbor who doesn't know Christ this week? There'd be a, uh, uh, well, I'm try, try this. And you don't have nearly the clarity we do when it comes to measuring our stats in warm-ups. Is it sinful to measure your stats in warm-ups? No. Is it good to know if you're making shots or not in warm-ups? Probably. That way you can adjust your shot and get it in in the game. So don't hear me say it's wrong to know where you're at in any of those things financially or vocationally or relationally. None of that is sinful, but if you have a clearer picture of that than what God has clearly called you to in righteousness and making disciples, maybe you're not competing by the rules. 
and you're an athlete who's gotten sideways. Here's the fourth method for building a strong spiritual house. Work like a farmer. Work like a farmer. Verse 6 says the following, It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. I'm not a farmer, and I don't particularly like doing this work, but here's what I do know. Tilling the ground is really hard, especially if you've ever operated one of those industrial-strength rototillers. That's a crazy shoulder workout. Those things are, yeah, it's hard. I know pulling weeds is really hard. Quickest path to low back pain, spend the afternoon pulling weeds. And I know from my farmers who are friends that the long days of harvesting, 15-hour days, 14 days in a row, 21 days in a row, as long as it's warm out and not raining because you don't know how many of those days you're going to get, you get to it is exhausting. Everything about farming is hard. And sometimes I wonder if we've traded in our view of the Christian life that requires great effort and strenuousness, and we're wondering when the easy part will come. And Paul says, no, embrace hard work as part of the Christian life. Now, of course, this comes in a, in a view of saying, my hard work doesn't get me to heaven. It doesn't earn me extra favor with God. My hard work doesn't even ensure the harvest. God is the one doing all of that. That would be legalism to lean into any of those things and say, my hard work gets me to heaven, my hard work earns more favor with God, my hard work ensures the harvest. But some of us have rejected legalism and embraced laziness and called it resting on grace when we're afraid to put forth effort. Friend, let me just tell you, if your spiritual muscles aren't ever getting tired, I wonder if you're reading the same Bible I am. Because Paul says you need to work like a farmer and need to recognize that the farmer is the one who actually sees the crops get harvested. You get to eat the sweet corn when it first comes in, and it's so good. But it's going to take a while. Getting ready to start tilling up the ground here in a few weeks. And you're not going to see any of that sweet corn until months down the road. So dig in for the long haul and recognize that it's worth it. And if you wonder if it's worth it, just find somebody with some gray hair and ask them to tell you how it's been worth it over the long haul as they've invested and invested and invested. And maybe in the six-month view, they don't see a whole lot, but in the six-decade view, boy, they sure do. And ask them to testify to the goodness of God and see what he's done. You recognize, look, some of us plant, others of us water, some of us harvest, but God is the one who gives the increase. So I do my part and trust him with the rest. There's four methods Paul gave us to building our spiritual house. Generational discipleship, focus on others. As a soldier, I'm focusing on someone else, namely my enlisting agent. It's not about me. As an athlete, I'm focused on not the rules that I'm interested in, but the actual rules. It's not about me. As a farmer, again, it's not about my desires. Doesn't matter if you want to go till up the ground in March or April. You'd better. Every single time here, Paul is pointing us away from ourselves. The thing about looking away from ourselves as we try and build a spiritual house is for a little while, it can go okay. Like for a short period of time, I'm going to commit to this deny myself thing. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to focus on what God has called me to. But you try and do that denial of self 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, for weeks at a time, months at a time, years at a time. It gets tiring, doesn't it? I don't put my spiritual feet up. I'm out of juice. I'm tired, right? That's where it hits us. And I think Paul recognizes that's where we're going to be when it comes to the end of this passage. There's a lot of action-oriented stuff in here. Go do this, go do that. Build with this material and with this method. And he comes to this closing hymn at the end. And I want you to look back at it, the very end, and see what it says. Because I think you find the grace of God showing up in remarkable ways. Here's what it says. Basically, if we died with him, then we'll live with him. If we endure, then we'll reign with him. It's worth it. Keep going. But there are real consequences, he says, if you don't. If you deny him, he will deny you. And there is eternal damnation and judgment coming for any who does not confess Jesus as Lord and build their house according to him. And then that last phrase is kind of a confusing one for us sometimes. It says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? It's a contrast between the third line. It said, if you deny him, he'll deny you. And then if you're faithless, it's not saying someone's not a Christian. It says, no, you have weak faith and a strong object. If you lack faith, recognize Jesus will never lack faith. He will always be the faithful one. Maybe the the best way I can think of to describe this, and I've used this before, I think I used it even last Sunday night in our Bible Institute. Go all the way back to Egypt when the Israelites are there. And you've just lived through all the plagues. Two Israelite guys are talking. They're getting ready to come up on the night of the Passover. And they've got this word that the Angel is coming through. He's going to kill all the firstborn unless you apply the blood on the doorpost of your house. And they're talking. And the one guy says, man, I'm so glad God's going to deliver us. I'm excited. Let's get this blood up on the door. He said, we're getting out of here. We're, going to, we're finally going to be free of these Egyptians. He's confident. A lot of faith. Strong faith. And the other guy says, I don't know, man. Like, doesn't this freak you out a little bit? Like this God who came down and turned the water into blood and sent all the frogs and the darkness and the gnats and killed all the livestock and all that, like, what if I put the blood on wrong? Like, I'm a firstborn. Doesn't that scare you a little bit? And the guy says, no, God is always faithful, always keeps his promises. Have some trust in him, man. He says, well, I know God is faithful. I know he keeps his promises, but I'm still scared. I'm wondering about all this. Are you going to put the blood on your doorpost? Well, of course I am. That's what God said to do, but I can't. Can I be a little fretful in the process? So they go, go, and they both put the blood on their doorposts. Which one is saved? The answer is both of them are. Because it's not the strength or intensity of their faith that matters. It's the object of their faith that saves them. It's as if Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, remember, there will be days when your faith will be weak and Jesus will always be strong. So don't cling to the intensity of your faith, but cling rather to the object of your faith. And even in your weakest days, cry out and end where I started. Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Park said, that's how you build a strong spiritual house. It starts 
and ends with the faithfulness of Jesus, his grace for undeserved sinners, good news for bad people. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you confessing our need for your grace. Our thankfulness that you would give it in the person of Jesus. We confess our faith is often weak. But you are strong. And so we cling to you, knowing that you have the words of life and there is nowhere else for us to turn. Jesus, help us to cling and run to you no matter what. To not look to ourselves and be deceived about what we may have, but recognize we need you desperately. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.